Welcome to the Celtics Pride podcast on Celtics Blog. I am Adam Motenko, here as always with my twin brother, Josh. Yo, what's going on? And good friend, Mike Minkoff. Hello, gentlemen. Today on the pod, we are putting our general manager hats on and we are going to talk about the Celtics offseason because we finally have some news from the NBA about what next season is going to look like, at least enough to project. Uh, So Woj has been reporting a lot this week that, number one, there's not going to be a full agreement between the Players Association and the Board of Governors on the CBA until just before the draft, which is on November 18th. But the, the league is moving forward. Um, as if they know. And and what I'm hearing, and Mike, I want to corroborate this with, with what you're seeing out there also, that free agency is basically going to be managed simultaneously with the draft. Is that what you're seeing also? No. Yeah, that's basically what I've seen. I mean, as far as I can tell, it's uh, going to be a bleep show <laughs> for, <laughs> for uh, front offices from uh, approximately now through November 18th, 19th, 20th. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see. I think, you know, there's a lot of unknowns, like when options are going to be, uh, oh, yeah. decisions are going to have to be made and all of that stuff. Uh, but yeah, as f- it seems like the free agency is going to be more or less simultaneous with the draft prep and execution. There was talk of of starting free agency officially like the day after the draft or or after the draft. Um, And there is a trade moratorium that that is on right now that is supposed to be lifted just before the draft. But from what we're hearing, people are talking about free agency. They're talking about trades now with the assumptions on what the cap and whatnot will look like. But it sounds like the league is going to start on December 22nd, right before Christmas. They're going to make up a, a bunch of money by doing that. Um, the players are, are on board with that now, even though there's some I's to dot and T's to cross. The league will play 72 games in the 2020-21 season, and training camp, camp will start on December 1st. Uh, so they are choosing to maximize money. They're working really well together. I, I'm so impressed with how the Players Association and the league with their relationship and, and what they're doing now is really a testament to, to that relationship that has been built over the last few years. And we know some economics here as well, so the players are going to... They're basically going to smooth these this escrow. So every year, players have a portion of their check taken out, and then at the end of the year, that typically they get that back. But it's it's so that they can manage money towards the end once they know what the final numbers look like. They know that they're going to make a lot less this year. Um, so it was I was seeing numbers like as much as forty percent might get taken out of players' contracts because that's. The, those are the total losses for the league. And you're basically, it's basically an even split between players and owners of revenue. And um, so they would take that percentage out of the player salaries and then try and manage it at the end. And they're smoothing that. So it's 18% is going to get taken out over the next two years held for the players. They're likely not to get that at the end of the year. And we're looking at a cap that looks very similar to this last year of about $109 million. I saw uh, Shams Sharani a tweet about a 2% annual growth in the cap and the tax, but the projections are looking the same as this year. A 109 uh, cap, 132 is the luxury tax, and then an apron at 139. Um, so those are the, the three line numbers that fans need to be aware of when thinking about the offseason. And Micah, is there additional information you want to toss in here about economics? No, I don't. I mean, in addition to the 109 cap figure, uh, we've got a 2% annual growth in cap over the next two years. 
um, which is a, a, a fair bit lower than what the NBA had been increasing at, um, you know, in the pre-pandemic years. Uh, so that that the be 109 for last year. The 109 for last year was lower than the 116 projected as well. So we're working off of numbers. Like like teams, have, I think, started to prepare for there to be more money in the coffers than than they're seeing, not just in future years, but for this past year too. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into this. I mean, for a team like the Celtics, that was already kind of going to be a bit up against it with a lot of uh, big salaries already on the books and extensions kicking in. Um, this adds some complexities into their their offseason cap math. Uh, the only other thing I'd add is, as you noted, Adam, you know, there had been talk around the league about this potentially, you know, 40 percent figure in the escrow. Uh, the the withholding of the player salaries that that is used to kind of make the finances whole across uh, the the owners and the players and as as relates to back basketball related income um, projections versus actuals uh, at the end of the the cap year uh, what what this eighteen percent kind of represents is actually basically a a loan <laughs> by the owners to the players uh, it's a it's a pretty significant show of good faith, partly offset by the owners asking, especially the teams that went deep into the playoffs, to basically turn around in two months and get back on the court. Um, but it, it will be interesting and, and perhaps suggest some optimism for uh, looking looking ahead to kind of the next labor negotiation. Um, you know, the players and owners have managed a remarkably difficult time with uh, – a fairly amazing amount of kind of uh, positive, positive dynamics and goodwill. Um, and I think this, this 18% number, which is only 8% higher than kind of the default 10% that uh, the escrow has been at historically um, could be a really significant kind of olive branch uh, to maintain, maintain good relationships going to the next um, labor negotiation. So something to kind of, keep an eye on it. It'll be interesting. And the reason it's kind of like a, a loan is because as you noted, Adam, the, the NBA could get really, really, really racked financially uh, this upcoming year, especially if there's no fans in the arenas, um, which is up to like 40% of the, the overall revenue generated for the league. Um, at least that's some of the figures that have been out there. So if that revenue is not being made up in, in modest part, even, um, then there's every reason to believe that the the owners paying all but 18% of player salaries is is skewing the the BRI the basketball related income towards the players in a way that that is less than what the owners by the letter of the CBA are entitled to Josh any questions I would like to play the role of uh of the hypothetical idiot in this situation. Okay. I'm going to ask you guys a couple questions uh, just to try to make sense and like give this some context. All right. Um, it, just in case some fans have the same questions. Uh, we can't, if we lose Hayward for nothing, we cannot use his money to just go out and re-sign somebody else. Why not? Because we are over so, the cap. Right. Right. The Celtics, actual um numbers with hayward opting out 
I th- we remain over the salary cap, over that 109 figure. Um, uh, or maybe we get a little bit below it. Uh, but but either way, we definitely are not in a position where we could sign another max or anywhere close to a max player. The the best we would be able to do then is use the uh, the non-tax player ML mid-level exception, which is like nine point seven million dollars. I and, think I think that might become that would become available to us. And the reason is because if we if we tried to sign uh, another max player we're capped out already but if we were to sign to re-sign a max player with the same money we have bird rights on him and so that that's the difference is the bird rights allows you to do that over the cap is that right Mm -hmm. yeah and only about like a handful of teams have have enough salary or under the salary cap by enough money that they're going to be able to sign a max salary player and most of those teams are bad so, Mike, you brought up that that the idea of fans in the arena, and I just want to flag that because one thing that I have not heard much about is what this season is going to actually look like. Where these teams are going to play? Are they going to do a bubble? Are they going to try and have teams stay uh, in their hometowns and travel? And in that case, what do, what do bubbles look like? Um, are they going to try and have fans in arenas? We actually have seen a fair amount that the league really wants to have fans. In attendance, because that's where forty percent of the revenue comes from, and I know that um, that owners are asking the commissioner what additional things they can do to uh, to make money. There's all some interesting sponsorship marketing things happening to try and increase revenue for the league, and um, and there's going to be a discrepancy potentially if they do allow fans into arenas that will be based on local policy in the state or city that the teams play about how many people can congregate in a public space indoors. And, um, and I want to flag this because it has not always gone well for other sports in terms of the spread of COVID. Um, and, and the NBA did a remarkable job of preventing a spread of COVID, which was unclear whether they could do. And it was because right. of the bubble. So I'm I'm waiting to see what this looks like, and because I, I think that that could I think that the NBA is going to be safer with player health than the NFL, for example, and um, and I think they're going to take it extremely seriously, more so than other leagues. So we'll, I'm I'm waiting to see what that looks like, and and I think everybody is, and I think they're waiting to make a decision because they're they're remaining hopeful hopeful about potential policy shifts or vaccine or rapid testing increase and things like that. Yeah, we're, we were so unsure of whether they could pull off this bubble without a massive spread of COVID-19 that Mike and I lost a bunch of brisket in a bet to Adam. You know, we, we did have a crowned champion this past year, so we still need to pay up on that bet. But Adam, regarding yeah, the... I'm, yeah, I'm working on that and a solution is forthcoming. I will be reporting on the podcast about it. <laughs> uh, well, how, how well spoken of you. Uh, the the other part of of what you just said that I think is important to touch on, at least from a Celtics pride standpoint, is the advertising. Right, there's talk about advertising uh, alcoholic products or al- advertising gambling or advertising, you know, o- other things that the NBA in the past has been more choosy about uh, declining those types of um, revenue streams, and that now we we need the revenue so much that the league may decide that that all of that is okay. Uh, the Celtics, if I remember correctly, were the last team to add cheerleaders. And, and this this is connected because, you know, Red Auerbach 
the, the godfather of the Celtics wanted to keep it about the team and keep it about the sport and the game. He didn't want the halftime shows. He didn't want all that extra razzle dazzle entertainment stuff. Like he cared about the sport and, 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 uh, you know, to the point where he didn't even want cheerleaders. He didn't want distractions of any kind. And this, I feel like Red is rolling over in his grave right now with with all of this. What do you guys think? I think Red likes seeing the team win and monetizing this stuff is going to help them do that, especially with this luxury tech stuff. I mean, Red was never the owner of the team. He was never the one that was looking at the books in that way. Yeah, and uh, the for better or worse, the league is a long place from where it was when Red was <laughs> most heavily involved. I mean, the second... Uh, crass as it is more or less a second <laughs> after red passed away the celtics had cheerleaders um so you know i i think i think this the league is going to be turning over uh every every you know stone possible to generate additional revenue stream you know there are certain types of um revenue streams that i imagine they'll still stay away from um if the cost benefit especially as far as turning off the fan base uh doesn't doesn't play out um zach Lowe reported recently that uh warriors ownership has been advocating for like 25 to 50 percent of luxury suites to be open so that at least high paying uh you know particularly wealthy fans are able to be in the arenas um but i think you know i i, I think the league by virtue of going to this accelerated startup in uh december is acknowledging that they're going to really have limited opportunity to have a critical contingent of fans in the arenas this season. Uh, and they're just trying to kind of get the season um, underway, get enough games in to get their regional sports network uh, hit those kind of numbers, which is I think 70 games yep. is typically yep. the, the, the target. So the 72 is a very intentional target here. Um try to make, you know, their their national broadcast partners, ESPN, TNT, happy um, by getting the Christmas game and, and the trophy presentation before the Christmas game and all of that stuff. Um, and and we'll see. I mean, if, if there is rapid testing and there are, you know, local guidelines that allow for uh, certain numbers of fans, I'm sure the NBA will, will go right up to that threshold. Um, but I, I also think we're we're going to see not just questions about fans, but while I have no doubt the NBA is going to take every every protocol they can and, and is going to manage this as effectively as any league we've seen, um, it's going to be a totally different scenario and context than the bubble. Uh, players are going to be traveling to different cities. They're going to be able to go out. Uh, bars and restaurants are open all over the place, uh, even though there's limitations. You know, people still drink. People um, don't have the same safety protocols. The 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 virus, you know, um, infection rates are are increasing dramatically across the country. So I, you know, and unlike the NFL, NBA teams only have 15 players. Uh, versus 50 uh, or 53 or whatever NFL teams have. So, um, you know, I think that's going to be a really interesting dynamic and potential complication in the NBA schedule is if if teams do have get infections across a number of a number of players and are unable to 
field teams or are are we just going to have a lot of games this season where nba rosters are only running out nine or ten players uh, because they've got infections so it'll be interesting to me to see how that part evolves and then adam the on the travel what it sounds like from like um i think uh brian windhorst and on the hoops collective that podcast has been talking about and zach Lowe on the low post his podcast have been talking about kind of it looks like there's going to be a change in the approach to travel there's not going to be bubbles but certainly not in the way that um they did in disney but there is going to be efforts to concentrate uh games in in areas um teams might play in more of a series approach uh kind of like what uh, they do in baseball so like if the Celtics and Knicks are supposed to play, you know, three times in, in New York, they may knock those all out more or less in a row instead of spreading them over the course of a season. And they might, and the Celtics might go to New York and also play Brooklyn at the same time. And so uh, they could be down there for a stretch to limit the amount of travel and, and get in all of those games in a, sh- in a relatively shorter period of time. So I think, the NBA is looking to reduce the total number of trips teams take, uh, concentrate where the you know games in the places that they're traveling to as much as they can, um, and and I'm sure again they'll put all the safety protocols they can in to monitor kind of player health uh, and wellness under the circumstances. But I you know I would be shocked if we don't get a number of positive cases over the course of the season. Yeah, I feel like this is something that that we may see continue after the pandemic as well. Like just from a it just feels like it makes sense. If you're already in the city, you might as well play the person the team in the next city. And you know, why why are we going back and forth so much like in terms of the wear and tear on the team, not just the players, but you know, the the, the coaches and and the whole staff as well. I mean, all that travel is, felt a little unnecessary to me, and you could do it because you you had so much wealth. Um, but it seems like it's such a luxury that, that maybe now if we were have to be a little frugal, it just makes more sense to do it that way. Don't you think? Well, I think we'll have to see how it goes. I, I mean, I do like the idea of teams playing each other at different parts in the season of the season Mm -hmm. when, you know, roster composition shifts a bit over the course of a year. Um, injuries happen in one part of a year that might not be relevant in another part of the year. Um, so if you're con, you know, in, in baseball, when they do it, you still have multiple series with the same t- team over the course of a season, right? So you still see them six times or whatever over the course of a year, you just play them in three or four game chunks, but you like the Red Sox and Yankees would play what 19 or 20 games a year or whatever it is. So, um, I, f- I feel like we'll miss that this year and that you will feel that as fans, it's like, oh, I guess, you know, if we play like Brooklyn, you know, six times in November or whatever, not November, we're not playing in November, in <laughs> December and January, um, then we just don't see them again. That'll feel weird. So we'll see how the NBA does it. Um, I hear what you're saying, Josh, but I, I do I do feel like we'll miss seeing these teams multiple times over the course of the season at different parts of the year. Yeah. Well, I'm excited that we are about a week away from the draft, about three weeks away from training camp starting, and about six weeks away from the season start again. It's 
Bang, bang, bang. Happening really fast. Let's talk about the Celtics situation. We'll set the table. And Mike, I'll ask you to, to put in context their cap situation. And, and then I'll uh, share what their roster situation looks like. And then we're going to dig into what we think the Celtics should be doing this offseason. Uh, some of which we've talked about in previous podcasts, but we're, we'll get a little deeper into it. So um, the Celtics are above the cap. They are uh, actually above the apron at this point. Is that right, Mike? What, do, what, do you, what are the Celtics looking at in terms of their tax situation and their cap okay. situation? So I'm going to do my best here. Um, I'm, I'm still a, a capologist in training. I'm... Um, I first want to give a shout out to Keith Smith, uh, a contributor to Celtics blog, Yahoo Sports, um, at Keith Smith NBA on Twitter. Uh, he has an amazing um, Google sheet with like five years of NBA wide cap information um, and broken down by team with all the free agents each year, all the cap numbers, all the player options, all the team options, all the non-guaranteed deals, two-way, etc. cetera. Uh, so uh, a, lot of, a lot of my information and insights are from this. That said, if I'm saying anything wrong, it's probably my fault and not Keith. So <laughs> just, just want to A, give Keith a shout out and B, um, get, put that disclaimer in place. But the Celtics right now uh, are, uh, including their current cap holds for $159 million. Um, without the cap holds, it's about $144 million, a little north of that. Um, and again, the salary cap is $109 million. We knew they were going to be over the salary cap. The tax is $132 million. Uh, so they're $12 million over the tax line, and the, the tax apron is $139 million. So they're a little over $5 million over that if they don't include their cap holds. And they currently have cap holds for guys like Brad Wanamaker, um, who, who's a free agent that they'll probably renounce. They've got um, a non-guaranteed deal with Daniel Tice, but I expect they'll keep him. They have uh, or Ennis Cantor and Gordon Hayward both have player options. Ennis Cantor's is a little north of five million. Gordon Hayward's is at thirty-four. Um, we'll talk more about them shortly, but let's assume for the the moment that they both opt in. Um, Javante Green is non-guaranteed. Uh, Brad Wanamaker I already already mentioned, and then they have. Um, Shemi Ojale oh, has a team uh, Ojale, option. Thank you. Yeah, Shemi Ojale has a team option. Um, can we so, can we start calling him the player who shall not be named? Uh, well, he's no. going to be the player who shall not be on the Celtics roster very for much longer. <laughs> I would God. I would say. <laughs> um, so she- Shemi and Javante, I would guess, are no longer going to be Celtics. Uh, Ennis Cantor is a bit of a mystery. Uh, Gordon Hayward is a mystery, and we'll talk more about that. Um, but again, so the Celtics are about $12 million over the cap, just if, you know, without doing anything other than like retaining basically Tremont waters. <laughs> um, and that, this is the second in the last three years where they'll be in the tax, which means one more time next, if they are in the tax again next year, they'll start paying the repeater tax. Um, 
at 12 million over the tax, their multiplier, uh, which again, this matters only to like Wick Rusbeck and Steve Pataluccia, but I bet it matters a lot to them. So that 12 million actually turns into $30 million as a two and a half time, times multiplier on that $12 million. So uh, the Celtics are looking at kind of a pretty steep price tag. And given all of the economic realities we just talked about for the season, including a potential significant reduction in revenue for the league as a result of lack of fans in the arenas, uh, it'll be really interesting to see how that drives a team's behavior this offseason. This ownership ownership group is phenomenal in that they've always said that they would pay the tax. They've paid the tax when when the team is good. Um, they've they've done that. These are guys that that are from Boston. They're they're super fans. Um, so as far as ownership groups go, we were very lucky in Boston to have them. I would say, um, but it will be interesting to see whether they still want to um, sign extra players who may or may not make the roster or who may or may not play pivotal roles in the team's success because of that multiplier effect of, of what their contracts will be. Um, because the team is over the tax, they have access, my understanding, uh, is to the taxpayer uh, mid-level exception, which is about $5.7 million. So they can sign a free agent for that amount for multiple years. They can sign players to a veteran, veteran minimum contract. And of course, they've got the draft and potential trades. Um, my count, they've got 12 roster spots committed. And when I say committed, that I include the Hayward and Cantor player options because the player decides on that. I also included Tice on that because I, they, they're they dumb if they don't guarantee his contract. So they, they will definitely be doing that. Um, and I'm not including Javante Green, Shemi Ojale, Brad Wanamaker, the three draft picks that they currently have, other potential free agents, and then they've got Taco and Tremont on two ways last year. They, they can sign two other two-way contracts. Um, so basically they have three roster spots that they're trying to fill to get to 15, not including the two ways. Um, and a lot, and, and they could just do that with the draft, the draft picks draft if they picks. wanted to. Right. But that would not allow them to sign another free agent. That would not allow them to re-sign Wanamaker if they wanted to. Uh, that's sort of a thing. So um, anything we missed in terms of the roster and – Celtics like cap situation. Well, just to add to what you were just saying, Adam, I mean, I would say because of what you just said, uh, I think it would, it's almost impossible to imagine a reality where the Celtics draft all three players with the intent of signing them all to the roster this season, which means, which means if they can't trade some of those later picks, um, they would be, targeting draft and stash type of players yep. uh and it would be my expectation i would i would be pretty surprised if they retain more than one of those picks and that's um, true is that true even if we were to cut someone like javante green well, yes you know. that's that's even yeah. if that's that as adam was saying that's even factoring in getting rid of javante green getting rid of brad wanamaker getting right. rid of um, Shemi Ojale. <laughs> uh, Josh, I basically am yeah. referring to him as the person whose name shall not be said because I can't remember his name, <laughs> which is <laughs> telling, even though I complained about him every single playoff game uh, with good reason, I believe. But <laughs> Right, so we're looking um, to make a trade um, either of picks or of other players so that we can take three picks, but we can't make a trade, uh, like we can't do any sign-in trades because free agents started when the draft happens. 
Well, they're talking about trades and free yeah. agency and all of that right now. I would not let the timing change the conversations. But yeah, the team is definitely looking to try and consolidate um, their draft picks. There's been reports that they're trying to do that. Of course, they're trying to do that because of the roster situation and because of how many young players the team has. The question is whether other teams are interested. Um, so we'll see what happens in the draft. Uh, the team is also, I'm sure, trying to consolidate um, other players on the roster with other trades. And and one right. nice thing about having Javante yeah. Green as a non-guarantee or having Shemi Ojale as a team option is that you can include them in trades and help another team save money if right. you are willing to, if the Celtics are willing to pay out more and take back salary. Um, so there's a lot yeah, of different options that can happen here. But we're already in the luxury tax. So we're not, we're not going to be taking back extra salary, you know, or assigning somebody just, just to do that. Well, probably, probably not, but I, I guess, could I, could I offer a, a couple of table setting, what I think at least are table setting thoughts? Cause I, yeah, you know, we, I, we've talked around this a little bit, Well, well, there's uh, one, but it gets to what you're saying. Thing. It gets to what you're saying. There's one okay, last ahead, option, Josh. which is the draft and stash option, right? We could take a Euro player like Bulmaro uh, or one Thank of the you. other guys. And, and that's the only part we haven't talked on, but go ahead, Mike. And and Adam T- yeah. Adam um, Spinella mentioned Leandro Balmero, and I know you like him, Josh. And I've seen him no, on a I couple don't like of mocks. Him. Oh, I okay. I, I see. Like I've seen him on no, a couple. I, of I was the one. I asked about him. I asked about him. Okay. I was curious. Yeah. Yeah, he's a guy. He's he's a, a great example of a draft and stash. Yeah. Um. So okay. So what I what I to me what's so fascinating and about this <laughs> this offseason is in addition or for the Celtics in particular is that in addition to it being wildly compressed from a time perspective and kind of chaotic because the draft and free agency are going to be operating more or less simultaneously um is that with the so you know there are these kind of whispers that are, that are kind of growing louder and louder about whether or not Hayward wants to stay in Boston at minimum, his agent is doing his due diligence to explore what the market is for Hayward um, and see if there are other options out there. And so much of how the Celtics can or should proceed is going to be dictated by the choice that Hayward makes. So if Hayward just decides he's going to opt out and sign with a team with cap, and there are about four or five, there's a, Atlanta, there's Charlotte, the Charlotte one, no. uh, Atlanta and New York Knicks, I think are, are kind of the most reasonable um, options for Hayward. Atlanta in particular comes up a lot as if, if, if he wants to get money and go to a team that could at least be a fringe playoff contender. So if Hayward walks away, the Celtics all of a sudden might have like marginal cap room or, or be just over the cap but they won't be attacked paying teams. And then all of a sudden they have a totally different set of options available to them, which aren't great. They're worse than their current set of options. If, if Hayward opts in, they can keep him. And again, people might not like him, but he's a very good player. <laughs> uh, and it's hard to replicate his skill set. Um, uh, or they can, you know, they can just keep him outright. They could, try to trade him this off season that could try to trade him closer to the deadline. So they have a lot of options available there. Uh, and then a third option is if he is inclined to walk away, but, and would prefer the Hawks over the Celtics, um, but would prefer a third team over the Hawks, then he and the Celtics might be able to work out a sign in trade. The problem, the challenge with the sign in trade is that 
it would hard cap the Celtics at 139 million, which means, you know, basically Hayward's contract would have to come lower than the current number, which it almost certainly would anyways in that, in that sign in trade scenario. Um, and the Celtics probably would have to take back less money um, than they were sending out in, in Hayward's new deal uh, to make sure that they're under the tax apron of 139 million, which is where they get hard capped. So, so here- all, all of that, it, it, the Celtics first move, I, I bring all of that up mostly just to say the Celtics first move needs to be as best they can figuring out what the heck Hayward's intent is right. and working to maximize accordingly. So I actually think the, the Celtics first move is to re-sign Jason Tatum. I think we all agree on that. We can put that aside. But the Hayward thing is after that is the biggest issue. And and what I see happening here is that Gordon Hayward has the option to opt into a 34 million and and uh, even with the 18% withheld, that's that's really good for him given his play. Um, and he's on a good team uh, that has a chance to win a championship in a really good situation, playing for a coach he likes. I, I, you know, by all accounts, the team gets along really well. And what's happening here is that Hayward is seeing if he can get a long-term contract, either from the Celtics or from another team that he wants, that he has a, a reasonably equivalent situation with. And his agent is working that hard. And it's a similar situation to what happened with Horford last year, where he, he also was in, had a player option and was able to get a huge contract. Um, so the, Hayward's agent is seeing what he can get from other teams. He's trying to drum up offers. He's bringing those offers to the Celtics saying, hey, he can go to Team X and get this amount. Can you give him the same number of years at a a similar amount? Um, And the Celtics want to keep him. I think they would actually like to have him either at the $34 million for next year and figure it out or to re-sign him at a a relatively low number. But with the re-sign, if he signs for... The next four years, for example, he needs to make up enough money over the the length of the contract that it is the amount that he'd make in this next season and the amount that he would make if he just waited and signed after this year a three-year contract. And that's a fairly high number that I don't think is actually out there, um, but I think his agent is working this as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, I don't don't think it's impossible that he could get three and 80 or four for a hundred, which is probably about where he'd have to come in to make that work. Um, I would have to do, I would have to do some, some more specific modeling to factor in like the escrow and and the implications there. You know, he, if he's, if he has a de-escalating salary uh, or no, I guess he'd prefer an escalating salary um, given the escrow considerations. But if he brings that 34 million getting hit by 18, percent down to like 23 million or 22 million in year one and then it's at 27 million in year four and it's only 10 percent escrow you know on the on the escrow front he saves himself quite a lot of money um so like there's a way that you could argue that he would actually prefer to do something like that and might might be willing to come as a little bit lower accordingly you know where he actually started like 21 and escalated up to like 26 or whatever you know whatever the escalations would be um yep. once you played it out for four years but so let me let me ask you guys if you're a fan and you're like well gordon hayward's not worth 25 million like he's definitely not worth what he's getting now 
but 25 million, he's not good enough for that. Like, what would you say to that, those fans? I would say that it's really, you're paying him the 34 for this year. That's happening. And you're really giving him 22 million for those other, other years. And, um, I, I would not disagree that he's worth a little, that 22 is a little high for him, but you're as, as people like to say, I think it's Jalen Rose likes to say, you are worth what you have the leverage to negotiate. And so if you're getting an offer from some from the Hawks, for example, for four years, 100 million, then you're worth four years, 100 million, uh, and, and assuming that you want to play for the Hawks. Right, but we can all agree that Al Horford was not worth what he got from Philly, right? Maybe yep. he was at the time of the signing, but no, we all know that he Even wasn't then. worth that. Yeah. Okay, so so then that proves, that proves Jalen Rose's theory wrong. Right, you're not actually worth that because now Horford's got an albatross contract that nobody wants. Right, I mean, there's right. Is it is it a positive value or a negative value contract for the team that that he signs with? Right, if if that's a question, I think at 25 million or thereabouts, it's closer than I think a lot of fans rec- acknowledge. And it like Gordon Hayward is is put into kind of a weird role um, that doesn't maximize his his skill set or strength on the Celtics but he bring he brings a lot of value to the team the team plays better with him on the court they were better than with him on the court um all season uh he is a extraordinarily efficient player he is not going to take over the game for you more often than not and i think that's what have has rubbed player rubbed fans the wrong way about his performance is that you know he's looked tentative at times. Um, he has not he's not imposed his will on the game enough uh, for for fans' likings uh, liking, especially at a max level. But I think you know if you look around the league, Harrison Barnes makes like twenty two million dollars. Gordon Hayward is empirically a better player than Harrison Barnes if healthy. Like he unquestionably adds more to your team than Harrison Barnes. Harrison Barnes is not a great contract, but um, he's he's closer to a, like appropriate value contract, I think, than people realize. Um, so I don't know. I I think Gordon Hayward at twenty, you know, I would. It might be very similar to what happened with Horford, where the Celtics would be willing to do something like Gordon Hayward at around twenty-five million for three years, but not go to four years. And if another team is willing to go that fourth year, the Celtics might say, "All right, well, good on you." And look how it worked out for Horford. Now, like he's seen as a deadweight contract that might get shipped to a crappy team if the Sixers can pull it off. So that's something that Hayward's going to have to consider as well. If it if that so, extra year is worth it, here's the other way where it's similar to the Horford situation. I think that there's a, a sentiment on the Celtics blog staff Slack that that the Celtics fans, in a way, kind of drove Horford out of town, um, and specifically that his you know that that fans on social media were not being nice to his family members, and that. Uh, you know, Horford sisters come on Adam Taylor's uh, Celtics pod podcast talking about, you know, the, the fans were brutal to her in Boston. And, um, you know, I, I think that the same thing has been true for Hayward. And I, I think it's not a stretch to say that 
to, to wonder and to question whether Hayward's wife is has put up with like some rudeness from Celtics fans. Um, and I, so I think that there's this sentiment that on on the Slack that you know we don't want the fans to drive Hayward out like they did with Horford, kind of a thing. Um, now looking at Horford's contract, like we we wouldn't have paid that and didn't want him for that anyway. So you know it's it's not doesn't tell the whole story, but you know. As a Celtics fan who has wanted to trade Hayward, I understand you know the the sentiment of wanting to get rid of him. Uh, I don't understand the sentiment of like being rude on social media and all that. But uh, you know, Celtics fans and Boston sports fans in general have historically, in my you know homegrown Boston opinion, we we have some of the smartest fans. You know, our fan bases know the ins and outs of the sport more than most. Um, I would put New York in the same category. Like we, the, the, the New England fans really know their stuff. Um, they're also high ego people and, you know, sometimes cross over the line. What do you guys think about, about that kind of commonality between the Hayward and Horford situation? Are you saying the comments are coming because the performance of the player has notched the salary that they're making? (laughs) No, just that, that. You know, when Hayward has a bad game or when he plays with, you know, no confidence, which I will call him out for, that that fans were are probably calling him out, uh, you know, towards his family members on social media and probably being more rude than they should be, um, which is not not uh, uncommon for, for Boston sports fans. I mean, we grew up in a time when friendly, family-friendly Fenway was not so family-friendly. And, you know, there's a lot of profanity being spewed at the, the, the on-deck hitter as he's warming up, swinging the bat in the, in the on-deck circle. You know, and as a kid, we grew up hearing things that we probably shouldn't have heard from Fenway Boston fans. Yeah, it sounds like Boston. <laughs> it's a cold-weather city. We're super into our sports. We care a ton about it. Uh, that's what we're focused on in the wintertime. And we're not always the nicest people. <laughs> so I'm curious if you guys think that the fans are, like, connect, are driving players away. Like... Because I don't, I, I don't I agree think, with that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I'll, I'll frame it. I think this is kind of the direction Adam was going. You know, the market is what it is. For some, for some players, that works. For others, it doesn't. The Boston market, as a, as a, a market for sports, um, in the, you know, the media environment, the, the fan behavior, it's not going to change dramatically anytime soon. So. You know, if you are a free agent and you're signing in Boston and you don't know what you're getting into at this point, that's a little bit shame on you. I don't, I don't love that players, you know, I, I don't understand at all what goes into kind of individuals' minds when they like berate people on social media behind anonymous identities. Like, I just don't get it. I, um, I don't, I don't know what the appeal is, but, and I wish people didn't do it, but people do it um and boston and like anywhere along the northeastern corridor you're probably going to get more of that than you are in many other places um and that's just kind of the reality so uh if that is an influencing factor i think it's unfortunate um but i also think people should sign people signing into boston should kind of know what they're getting into at some level and if you don't perform, if you sign at a number and you don't perform at a level commensurate with that number, you're gonna you're gonna hear about it. Yeah, like if I'm one of those one of those dudes in Boston, I'm like, 
where they can't handle coming to Boston and playing for you know like fans that know what they're talking about. Like if you can't handle could you, it, don't could you play say that Boston. with a little more Boston accent, Josh? <laughs> well, you can't handle it over here in Boston. That wasn't that good. Was that wasn't good. You're undermining our credibility. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of here. You can't handle it here. Get out. Josh has been gone for a while. He don't. Yeah. He doesn't know. I've been on the. West I mean, Coast look, I, I, years. I, I believe that that uh, the way the. F- the players' families are treated is a factor in their decisions about where to play. And it doesn't shock me that uh, Hayward and Horford's families got some less than nice interactions with fans that, um, that they didn't enjoy. And I I wish that wasn't the case. Um, It it makes me think that, you know, racism is a factor in in, for players, uh, black players playing in Boston and, and has been historically, and I think still is. And I wish that wasn't the case either. Um, and I think the reality is that the players are making decisions about what, um, is the best situation holistically. And these elements play a role as does the money, as does the chance to win. I mean, we're, we're not talking about, um, living the rest of their lives here, uh, for the Haywards. We're talking about another four years as opposed to one year. Um, so, and, and there certainly have been players and coaches and executives, whatnot, who's fam- like Red Auerbach lived in DC, his entire career with the Celtics, his family lived in DC. Um, Doc Rivers family lived in Florida the entire time that he was coaching the Celtics. Um, so that kind of thing happens too. But um, I, you know, the idea that that is that the fans are driving Hayward to look elsewhere. I don't believe that. I believe that his agent is doing a good job being his agent right now. And I think that the, ideas that Hayward is definitely ready to leave is overblown. I think he's looking for the best situation for him as he should. And he's negotiating as he should. And he's using the media to do it as he should. Do you think there's, there's a chance that sweetheart Gordon Hayward's at home, like kind of not wanting to be a part of this whole thing that his agent is setting up. Like he really just wants to come back to Boston and play with Brad, play for Brad. And, and, you know, like he wouldn't be going about it this way if he didn't have an agent kind of a deal. Because he's such a sweetheart, is is that a possibility? I don't know. Because I, I see know. him being, I see him being that I nice don't, guy doing that. Like I just, I'll I just don't, I don't. Celtics. I mean, look, I, I don't exactly know how how the agent player dynamic works, but I'd like to think that a player would be able to prevent an agent from behaving that way if they really didn't want them to. Sure. And I, I think if a player was like. Yeah, I you know I like Boston, but I also want to get a deal that's commensurate with my value. Do what you have to do. Um, then they're empowering their agent to do what they're going to do. Uh, so um, you know, I uh, I think there's a lot of ways players uh, can can work with their agent agents on that. Um, you know, it was kind of like uh, I, I don't let. Gordon Hayward get a pass on something like that the same way people didn't get let like Anthony Davis get a pass um, by being like, Oh, or at least I didn't where it's like, Oh, he has clutch. He has no control in the situation. Well, he went, he, Anthony Davis chose to go to clutch. He knew what was going to happen when he went to clutch, everything that everyone could have predicted to happen did in fact happen once he went to clutch, like, you know, player players have autonomy in, in the way that they are, engaging with their agents and in, in, in these situations. So I'm sure I'm sure if all of this is really driven as leverage tactics by his agent, as Adam, you're surmising, and I, I think reasonably, 
um, it's do- being done with Gordon's blessing. All right. So, 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 so yeah, Adam, step one, re-sign Tatum. Step two, yeah. keep Hayward. So if you are the Celtics, if you're Danny Ainge, Josh, and then Mike, what do you, what do you try and do regarding Hayward? Are you trying to get him to opt in and just do the one year? Are you trying to sign and trade him? Are you trying to uh, extend him? Like, what's an ideal outcome? I'm trying to sign and trade him, and and we can go to the the previous Celtics Pride podcast okay. for for you know trade Hayward ideas. Um, but if we can't do the sign and trade either because of the hard cap or because of the timing of things with the draft, um, that may make it so difficult that that you know you're just not going to be able to line things up the way you want them to to go. Um, and in that situation, then it's like, okay, well, then then let's keep Hayward. Let's re-sign him to, to hopefully less than $22 million. Um, but if if we can't, I mean, there's got to be a number that we stop at and say, but no, the, we're not going to re-sign you to, like, to 30. You're framing this as, a, as what the Celtics did. Like, again, if I'm the Celtics, if I'm managing right now in this situation, I'm just information gathering. Um, and... They're not the 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 unfortunate reality. The Celtics aren't really in a situation to steer one way or another, absent certain types of information. So it's like, is there a market for some of their trade assets? If so, that you know, they they have to simultaneously get information about what the trade value is uh, of their you know kind of flotsam on their on their roster roster some of their young players like grant williams maybe romeo langford Carson some of their Edward. draft assets um it, he has no trade value um uh and and then figure out you know what what gordon hayward is signaling if gordon hayward is open to re-signing at a lower number and extending for an additional three years i think that's probably the way i would i would lean I think that's given the hard cap. I think that's favorable to the sign in trade because it gives you more flexibility this season with other roster moves that you might not have. Um, uh, and and the Celtics, if they're keeping Hayward on the roster in particular, are a legitimate championship contender this year. And I think losing Hayward, especially if it's for nothing, reduce you know lowers their ceiling a bit. And Mike, that's what I think most of the the staff at Celtics blog would echo that sentiment that, that there's too much Hayward hate that we need to keep him and that we have the best chance of winning with him on the team. I would expect him to either opt in to his, his one year or for the Celtics to resign him the way Mike is talking about uh, to a longer term deal. Those are the expected outcomes. Those are your expected outcomes. Yeah. And based on, and based on gut, based on what? Yeah, based on how the tea, how I'm reading these tea leaves, like the right. the what I think is happening here is that Hayward's agent is negotiating and he's trying to get he's basically I think he's trying to get a longer term deal in a good situation. I think this is a good situation for Hayward, um, despite what the fans might do to his wife and his family. Um, I think it's a good situation. And the problem, the challenge that that brings is that you then look at the cap for next year. And you see, okay, Jason Tatum is going to resign. I think that number is twenty. Starts at twenty-eight. Um, 
and uh, for the max for zero to six years, you get Kemba Walker's 36 million. You've got Jalen Brown's almost 26 at that point. And then you get Marcus Smart at 14. You add, let's call it 25 million for Gordon Hayward. You're at 106 million. So you're right below <laughs> the 109 cap. And that doesn't leave much room for really for, for much else. Um, so this team is going to be have a huge luxury tax bill and be a little uh, handcuffed in terms of who who else they can put up on their one or two five million dollar centers as they've been doing maybe they get lucky in the draft and they draft somebody really good who can play center but you're not filling that role um and uh and that just becomes an issue going forward so so the second question of course is then is that gordon hayward at 25 million a tradable contract and i think the answer is like mostly yes uh, uh, unless he he injuries remain a problem for him so I think it's a fair thing to do. And I think that, that Danny will sort of figure it out from there. And so then the next question is about the MLE. Like if we can sign, use the, either the 9 million or the 5 million MLE. It's just the five that we have available, 5.7. Oh, okay. So we could, and, and actually before we get to that, I, I'm curious, do you guys think that Cantor has this $5 million option? This is also something that doesn't matter what Hayward does. The Celtics have no decision on it. Do you guys think Cantor will pick up that option or do you think he will be able to get a better deal or a longer term deal elsewhere? I struggle to envision him getting a much better deal. He might be able to get a longer deal, but I like I could see him getting the the taxpayer mid-level, which is what we have from another team, another tax team that's looking for another big to round out their rotation. Um, I just don't, I don't know that either he or the, the teams in the situation uh, that are, that are not taxpayer team would have kind of interest in a pairing where, and, and I doubt he would get like a full non taxpayer mid-level exception, which is the nine point, what are the 9.7? I think, um, million dollars uh he could get like no he's not gonna get you know a portion a portion of that like six million like a team doesn't have to give him the whole thing if they don't want to but um there are some good bigs that are free agents this year so that are going to be competing for those mid-level exceptions i think so i don't there was a rumor early in like shortly after the bubble ended about uh, Cantor leaning towards opting out. I think the Celtics might be pretty happy if he did that, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. Yeah, he he would, you know, that he would he should opt out so that he can find a long term deal, and I think he can find a long term deal, even if it's at the same number, uh, five million. But you know, just the fact that this is the last year of his deal, I would think, considering the times, you'd want uh, to have a long term deal. Almost it's the same situation as Hayward. Like, you, you want some security, whether you're making thirty-five or five million. Well, he would he would have a deal in place basically before he opts out. Um, right. The question I have is is one: what is the marketplace for him? And I think it is around that number, whether it's one year or two years, or I don't know that he can get a much longer deal than that. But also, is he going to have a role? Uh, on a good enough team uh, elsewhere. And I'm not sure if the answer is yes to that, a larger role than what he has on the Celtics, where he's playing big minutes, big-ish minutes, um, like part-time center minutes in, in the regular season. And then he may be sitting for series 
during the playoffs. Um, but he seemed really happy on the Celtics this year. He seemed to really like it here and in Boston generally. Yeah, I think he's he's kind of a happy guy in general, I feel like. He's always, you know, spreading positivity. He, and I think that his work in the community Except and on the Knicks. social... <laughs> yeah, he hated being on the Knicks. Yeah, but he's he's a guy who's going to spin things into the positive. And, I mean, just that's what he's done his entire life. Um, but I feel like, you know, he's also one only one year removed from being a major contributor in a playoff series for... Uh, the Trailblazers, you know, yeah. because they had injuries. And so I think that there's teams out there. I don't know. I, I think it's a, there's a world where he, he's a meet, um, sorry, uh, like a minimum level guy, um, you know, and then there's a world where he can be making five a year and having a bigger role than he has on the Celtics if a team likes him. Uh, whether it's a winning team, I'm not so sure. So, I mean, w- w- wouldn't you guys rather have somebody else? Yes, I yeah, I, sure. I think the Celtics would be very happy if Cantor opted out. I right. think I think Cantor was a good contributor for us last year, but I think there are a number of bigs that we could target if we wanted to round out our big rotation uh, based on available candidates um, at around the same price point uh, with with I think reasonable expectation that one of them could kind of come through. And and I also think we probably want to open the door a bit for for Robert Williams. Right, and maybe even Grant Williams as a small ball uh, five. So, so, so the names on that MLE list, right? We're not going to get Christian Wood for five million a year, five point seven. Yeah, right. But the names on that list, obviously, Aaron Baines is at the top of that. I would think Gasol is someone that I would rather have than. Yep. Uh, then who do you guys think sh- should also be on that list? I put Ibaka on that list, but the rumors are that he might get a massive one-year deal to yeah. stay in Toronto, so they keep flex- cap flexibility. But I, if if that were not the case, I think that he could be in the running. I don't think. Would you rather my have Ibaka or, or Gasol? You'd rather have Ibaka. Ibaka, no question. Yeah. Um, but but Ibaka is not going to sign for that little. He he's gonna. He's going to do like what the Lakers have done with with a lot of their guys, you know, where you're getting a twelve million dollar one year deal. Yeah. What um, other guys that that might be in the conversation for me? Not necessarily for the full five point seven, uh, but in that big big spot, uh, Nerlens Noel, uh, Harry Giles, are two guys that I'm I think could be interesting kind of rotation pieces for the Celtics Giles, to look at throw into the mix. Giles is a Harry Giles is a friend of um, Jason Tatum's. I don't know if it's from. That's I right. think it's from growing up, but from basketball. Yeah, I like Giles better than Nerlens. You know, Nerlens is a Boston guy. He kind of uh, didn't leave Boston on the best terms in terms of you know, obviously he was picked by what Philly, um, and uh, there there's some behind the scenes drama with him and his manager and other people in Boston. I just don't think he's someone who the Celtics are going to bring in just because of how how he departed. All right. Well, let me ask you guys about Baines because uh, the pod has stalled here. I feel like he, the way he left uh, was not ideal, right? I think that the fans didn't like Danny getting rid of him. We had to do it, what, to sign Kemba or Horford? You had to do it to create space to re-sign Horford that we didn't end up needing. Right. We, we, I think we went under the cap in order to do it, and you had to get rid of him to do that, and we gave up a draft pick. Right, and so it was a gamble that did not work out for Danny. Um, but I'm wondering if, if you no. know, if Sorry, Danny... it wasn't, 
it wasn't to get Horford. It was once Horford signed with Philly or signaled his intention to sign with Philly. We had to get rid of Baines in order to open up max cap room so that we could sign Kemba. In actuality, we didn't end up having to do that once everything played out because the Hornets uh, ended up becoming the home for Rozier and we were able to do a sign and trade. But we didn't know that at the time. And uh, we wouldn't have been able to engage in serious conversations with Kemba um, without having opened up the cap room. So I think Baines was happy here. I think that we were happy with Baines. Obviously, we did not we did not want to do that to him. But I wonder if you know if Danny calls us his agent, if his agent's going to be upset with how that happened, and if um, if Baines isn't going to be able to trust how you know, how Danny values him when he says he values him because of what he did to him last time. I mean, is it, is that just, could that be a deal breaker right there? It's similar to the Hayward thing. It'll be a factor. It'll be a factor, but I don't think it's going to be the deal breaker. I mean, it it depends what else is out there for Baines. I think he'll get a lot, a bunch of offers of this type. Yeah. The I mean, the question for me with, with Baines is if he's going to get, an offer well above that, that non-tax MLE, you know, he, I think his stock is, is clearly risen in the past couple of years around the league. He was, he was an absolute stud at times for the, the Suns. um, that, that tapered off over the, the, the season as it went on, but, and he had some injury issues last year, but you know, he's not a guy that's earned a lot of money in the NBA. If somebody, you know, if I don't know what team would would do this with cap room, if it you know if the Hawks or the Knicks would come come knocking on his door with like a two or two year three year deal at ten ten million per, um, he might have to take that, or he might yeah. even yeah. if it's not for as good a team, right? So, and I don't think that's impossible. Like he yep. clearly adds if it maybe it's a team like Minnesota. I don't know if they've got cap room actually, but you know, a team that really just Atlanta could make sense. They need to create a defensive identity. They're atrocious on defense. Um, you get a hardworking veteran presence like Baines, who's no nonsense. Uh, no one's going to mess with him in a locker room. Um, really high energy, positive guy, like, and helps sets the tone defensively, but helps set, sets the culture for, for a young team. Um, yeah. So, they've got, Atlanta's got Clint Capella and Dwayne Deadman already. Um, Baines made five million a year with us on his last contract, so this would just be the same as he was getting before. Uh, would yeah, you mean, rather? Would you rather you have talk Baines? about big guys? You talk about big guys like those three that we mentioned: Baines, Ibaka, and Gasol. Those are the top three, and there are not a ton of others. Like when you get down to Harry Giles, I wonder is he worth the taxpayer Emily of five mil? Can't you get him at no? The, that's why I said you'd you get know, him at million? last. Yeah, you yeah, might. Be I, mean, I don't know who else. I, I like Cousins, DeMarcus Cousins, more than you guys do. I don't even know if he's if, if you'd need to pay him that much to get him to come. Is he available? He's not a free agent, is he? I thought, oh, he was. I thought he was still on the Lakers. Oh, God. Guys, DeMarcus Cousins is so not the answer. Any other names other than those three are not. Would you Would you rather have Aaron Baines or Marcus Ole? Because I think the MLE should be used on Thanks. a big who who has, gives us a different look. 
you know, so it can't be a 6'9", 6'10", Harry Giles. It needs to be a beefier, stronger big. I, I, I'd rather have Baines, but I, I love them both. Yeah. Okay, what's your next move? If, you, if you're signing a big like that, you're re-signing Hayward, you're re-signing Tatum. What are we doing with the backup point guard position? So, well, I think you have to consolidate some roster spots. Um, so hopefully there's a trade that you can make. Maybe you give a pick and a couple of these like salaries that the other team can dump off their books and throw Poirier and Carson Edwards in there or something like that and just free up some space so that you can sign one or two veterans, veteran minimum contracts, guys that can play rotation minutes, whether a, whether it's resigning Wanamaker or getting another point guard that that might be better, you know, like the what the Lakers did with Rajon Rondo, that kind of a thing. Um, I'm sure the Celtics have, have players they'd love to go after, like Isaiah Thomas, the Celtics fans. I mean, uh, but I think you you need veterans on the roster who know what they're doing, who can play in the playoffs a little bit in the rotation, and I think you can get those guys with a vet minimum con- contract. You just need the space to have them on the roster. What would, you, what would you think of the Celtics going after someone like Derrick Rose? Yeah, for I mean, that. It, it depends on the number. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. he's at seven point two million. You'd have, you'd have to trade for him. He has one year left, seven point six mil on the Pistons. What would you give up from the like our our draft and and roster pieces? Well, that a trade Nominally. like that. I was looking at a trade for Derrick White from the Spurs and you know for either of these teams you're going to be giving up draft picks and just trying to make the salaries match um but it but the you know it would be centered around our three first round picks you know you you'd give two of those and I'm not sure which one probably 14 you'd have to and give one two of first round picks I mean if one for, of them because we got two late first round picks they're not that valuable and we don't want them anyway right so how valuable is Derek Rose though I mean I, I would yeah. I would probably you give, give him up Carson Edwards 30. Give him Carson Edwards, Shemi Ojale, Vincent Poirier, and a draft and, and the draft, a, a late two first. draft picks. No, you got to give up. Javante Green too. Because you just you just literally said I'm going to give you three pieces of poop and yeah. a draft pick. That's why you give up two <laughs> draft picks. Do you really think the league is that low on Carson Edwards that a team wouldn't take a chance on him? I mean, you yes. maybe you give the two late first round picks, you know, but you're still giving two first round picks. You know, and you're getting a Derrick Rose. Would you trade the 14th pick for Derrick Rose? No, no way. Really? No, no I don't way. think so. Okay. I, I mean, I would much rather figure out a way to dump salary and retain Wanamaker and, and take the 14th pick. Would you trade the 14th pick for Derrick White from the Spurs? I don't think yeah, so. I haven't probably. seen enough of Derrick White, but... He doesn't shoot. He shoots not, it all right. Yeah, not from three. Because I think I think if you can draft someone who can at fourteen who can slide into that Brad Wanamaker spot, you know that's that's what I think that we will end up doing. But I, I would rather have a veteran at that spot. I know the Celtics blog staff would rather have veterans. You know, and I don't think Wanamaker is the right one. Yeah, he's better than Shane Larkin and the other guys we've had in that spot, but he's not the ideal candidate for that. Look, I, I don't think we can expect whoever we take at 14 to become a contributor. Certainly not when the games really count. Like what Tyler Hero did this past year is highly unusual. 
Um, I don't I know, think, man. I think if you get a Cole Anthony or if you get uh, a Jamias Ramsey, I think that you know there's guys who can slide into that spot who can play on both ends of the ball right now. Um, that that are not prospects you're going to have to wait you know two to three years for. There's guys who are ready to go. Yeah, I, I I I mean, look, I don't I don't watch college basketball as much as you do, um, but there's two things. One. Just looking across the league, it doesn't happen very often. And two, looking at the way uh, Brad Stevens uses rookies outside of the early lottery picks we've taken, like Jalen and Jason, um, they just don't contribute a lot in their first couple of years. It takes them time to earn Brad's trust and to be regulars in the rotation. Um, yep. And yeah, so like Grant Williams, I, I think actually probably could have contributed more if given more opportunity. I don't think they'll get opportunities, especially at the point guard role. So I don't think we can count on our draft pick filling that role next year based on team composition and coaching. Would you guys trade uh, Romeo Lankford to improve the team short term? So that's a tricky it, question because he's injured right now, right? I mean, he had it's been seven weeks since his surgery. Uh, on his wrist, and when it happened, you know, both Chris Grenham or is it Gresham or Grenham? He said his, that you know that the type of surgery that he's getting is does involve a long recovery, and I believe Brad Stevens came out and said when you know when the the season ended that he was uh, probably not going to be ready for the start of the next season, and that was before we knew it was going to be you know in December. So you know you're talking about a guy who's who it's hard to trade a guy who's injured and recovering from injury. That, that's just kind of a general rule. It's really difficult. Teams want to see him play first. If he were healthy, would you trade him to improve the team short term? It, it depends on if I thought that we were making a trade that like very legitimately could push us into championship contention for this season. No, you're not going to um, do that though. He's, I would, he doesn't I have would that look value. seriously at that. Yeah, yeah the that's no, a high bar. The no, right? Exactly. The, the, that's the bar. Like exactly. In saying it completely in the abstract, then that's the bar. Like what he is, you know, we have him under cost control. He showed really promising glimpses uh, out in the like two minutes that he wasn't injured this year. Um, so I, you know, he's he's a an athletic wing that's strong. Like you, you'll take as many of those as, as you can get. And he seems like he's got a good feel for the game. So if he stays healthy and can kind of put together enough time to kind of work on his game and prove his shot a bit more and I'll, you know, learn the game a bit better. He could be a really effective rotation piece at minimum um, under cost control I, for a long time. So he's a classic example of, of a guy who's going to be more valuable to his own team than to another team right now. I mean, even from the perspective of other teams looking at him as being this offensive-minded uh, player coming coming out of college, and then he gets into the NBA and he doesn't do much offensively, but but he proves people wrong about the defense. You know, it's like he's he was kind of a one-sided player in college. Now he's a one-sided player in the NBA, but it's the other side of the ball. Um, he just didn't show enough, I think, to other teams. Whereas people internally may be really excited about him. I know I am. So I, I just know his value isn't as high as I think it is. The three of us love him, and he didn't contribute a whole lot in year one, mostly because of injuries. Um, and 
the reason that we love him is his potential. And I think that's the kind of player you can expect to get at 14. Right. So, and I think he's really important Gordon Hayward insurance as well. Having a guy who's waiting in the wings like that is really important when you don't know what's going to happen with Hayward. So even if we resign Hayward to 25 million a year, we don't know what's going to happen to him because his confidence and his injury history are both huge question marks still. So I don't think you trade. I think the guys you trade are the guys we've already mentioned. You know, the the Flotsam and Jetsam at the end of the roster. Um, do you guys draft for need or do you try and draft the best player available? I think I don't think you do either. I think you need to draft somebody who's ready to more ready to play now. And so that you know, there's some high end prospects, like a Cole Anthony's a big name. I think he's ready to play now. Um, you know, a guy like Yeah, a, I disagree. I disagree. A guy like a Jaden McDaniels, he may be the best player available at one of those later first round picks, but he's not ready to play right now. You know, so I think you're just what you need is is guys who are ready to get to step into the rotation and be able to to get some minutes. That sounds no, like drafting I just, for need. Yeah, I disagree with that because I again I, I just don't see the draft as being the way we're gonna shift our odds of of being able to win a championship this season. So, right, but you're, but Mike, it, any, you're making anything, this broad assumption that no rookie is going to be able to come in and, and step into the rotation at, at where we're picking. So, of course, you're going to uh, feel like... I'm, I'm, I think... So, there's two things. One, I think if we're going to make a pick at 14, it, if we think that player can contribute this year but doesn't project out well, then we shouldn't take him. Um. I, I would much rather us take someone that might need a little longer to develop if he's going to have, if he's got a, a steadier floor and a, a, a better ceiling kind of projection trajectory than taking someone that's high risk, high reward, um, or just is a little further along in his development, but closer to his ceiling already. Um, I mean, what I've heard about Cole Anthony is that he's, he's, pretty boomer bust and people are either are pretty hot on him or pretty cold on him um and there's a lot of questions about his fit in the nba game uh and whether he'll actually translate i know some people really like him uh, but but a lot of people are have a lot of questions about him so um and i'm just not that big on guards his size at this point in the nba I, i just We've already got Kemba. We don't need more small, slight okay, right. guards. But we're in. we're talking about the the third string point guard spot on the team. So you I'll can't call pretty... him a third string point guard and talk about him contributing right away. You can't have it both ways. <laughs> no, that's not true. We play our third string point guard a lot of minutes. That's why Brad Wanamaker played a lot of minutes. Our third string point guard though isn't going to influence our championship odds. Yeah, that's an important spot. That that spot gets ten to fifteen minutes a game. Brad Wanamaker. That impacts our championship odds. So, I mean, I, I agree. I we'd rather by, have a I, bigger. I, we'd rather have a bigger player at that spot. I'd rather have a six four, six five guy than a six two or six three skinny guy. I agree with that. But this guy is yeah. going to play minutes. You know that that third string point guard is going to play minutes, whether it's you know resigning yeah, Wanamaker or someone else. Uh, I I would I would like us to get someone that that we would feel comfortable with in the third quarter of the Eastern Conference Finals. 
being in that role. And uh, I think there's a possibility you could get someone in the draft like that. And if we, you know, draft someone that we really think has, you know, at 14, I think we should draft the player we think has the best potential um, period and has the best kind of makeup as a individual, as a, as a worker, as uh, I, you know, in terms of potential for skill development, in terms of basketball IQ and, and let that individual develop without the expectation that they're going to be contributing on year one to a championship um, by playing meaningful minutes. That doesn't mean they won't get there, but that would, if I was approaching the draft in the Celtics, that's what I would be focused on. I would not be looking for our number 14 pick to be the piece that puts us over the top this year. Agreed. And we should mention that there is a chance, you know, based on how all of this plays out, that uh, that teams may be drafting for other teams. You know, that that we don't know what Hayward's going to do after the draft is over, but we know that we're drafting players in the draft, right? So if, if there's a trade on the table or likelihood that the Hayward's uh, gone, I think that, that you could see us making other deals as well. I think that becomes more likely. If we know Hayward is staying, I think there's a world where the team looks very similar next year. And maybe that, that Brad Wanamaker spot's a little different, or maybe we shuffle around the end of the roster to make room for rookies. But um, I think there's also, there's also a world where we take uh, you know, some, a couple players that, we'll, that we know are going to be in trades to another team, and we know that those players are for that other team already. So it's going to make the draft a really interesting night. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they just announced the deals and uh, on draft night. Like this idea that we mentioned last week that you can't trade Gordon Hayward on draft night because free agency is going to start after. I think they're just going to announce the deals. That would make for an even more fun fun draft watching experience as yeah. a as a, you yeah. know, GM, you know, for the the fans of the NBA that like the GM stuff as much as the games. Like they would be all about that. <laughs> Well, if you're still listening, you're one of those people. I do think that um, continuity is going to be key for this next season, especially for the regular season. I mean, of course, talent always trumps everything else in the NBA. But if you don't have LeBron James and Anthony Davis and, and the best players in the league, I think continuity is going to make a huge difference. Teams like Miami and Boston, if they can keep their course together, are going to do better. Um, so I think this Hayward thing is going to be interesting to watch. Um, and obviously the bottom of the roster doesn't really matter that much. We didn't even talk about like taco fall and, uh, Tremont waters. Uh, but, uh, anything else from you guys before we end here? Well, real quick note on the continuity. I think Kevin Pelton at ESPN has looked into this, um, in, and in like past kind of weird NBA seasons, like the lockout shortened season, um, the teams with greater continuity definitely played better in the first 10 games and then things kind of normalized. So um, the continuity I think could definitely help the Celtics and and other teams have a little bit of a leg up, especially in the early going. Um, But it's not, it's based on that analysis. My understanding is that it probably wouldn't be enough to carry us through an entire season at a, at a, in a, you know, overly meaningful way um but it it, it's definitely going to help it'll help more than it hurts 
All right, guys. Appreciate all the time, all the research you're, you're both doing. We've got some good episodes coming up. 